Hi folks, it's Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is January the 3rd, 2012, and it is a Tuesday, and uh, we're ready to rock today and talk about some of the bigger potential disasters, stuff that could be global in scope. I figure, hey, I try to keep things positive around here, but we also have to be real with why we prepare. There are some big threats out there, some things that could possibly happen on a global level. A lot of them get overblown. A lot of them get really overblown by people in our industry. It doesn't mean they're not real. It doesn't mean they're not legitimate. It just means that we need to think rationally when we plan what we would do if they would come. And some of them, the answer is not much. Um, one I won't talk about today, for instance, would be what happens if a giant comet hits planet Earth? Well, enjoy a beer under a tree and watch the light show and go on to the next level of existence. That's what you do because you're not going to survive because the planet's gone. Right, so that's that's an extreme example. But for the other things, there's also stages. We look at nuclear. We look at Fukushima. That's one stage of nuclear disaster. That's a lot different than let's say if we had a Fukushima-style event at one of the major reactor uh, plants in let's say California. It affects us a lot differently than it does the Japanese, in spite of what some people are trying to tell you. Anyway, we'll look at a lot of these things. I have a pretty significant list of them. We'll try to stay positive even in a world of negativity and disaster and danger today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a great place to learn how to make knives. Not just to get materials to make knives, if you already know. And they're great for that. If you go to any of the blade forms, you'll find that they're just well thought of throughout throughout the entire internet community of knife makers. But let's say you don't know anything. You just I want to learn how to do this. You can buy kits that are uh, a lot of the work's done for you. You can get some DVDs and uh, some books, and you can learn how to do it. And you can progress from there, from being someone that puts together a kit with custom material to somebody that builds something out of completely raw materials. Take that as far as you like. And you don't have to progress. You can just make some really cool knives, and it doesn't cost an awful lot of money to do that. Check them out today, and make sure you sign up for their print catalog as well. They're at knifekits.com. Again, the best way to make sure you're dealing with an official sponsor uh, versus an imitator, go to the Survival Podcast. Podcast.com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Sponsor of the day, number two today, Sawtooth Tactical. Check out Sawtooth Tactical for all the stuff you need to live your tactical style of life. And I'll tell you what, um, he's a great guy over there, man, that runs Sawtooth. And I'm talking to him right now, trying to get you guys a contest this week, uh, maybe this week or maybe next week, to win a Buck Hoodlum knife. Uh, that's an awesome knife, uh, and I think it'd be an honor to carry one of those just in memory of Ron himself. So, uh, you know... Give this guy some business. He told me recently that uh, that toward the end of the year his business has kind of fallen off a little bit. And if you need something tactical, now would be a good time to maybe get over to a long-term supporter of the show. Spend a few bucks with him. You're going to get great service uh, and great pricing. And you're going to deal with a U.S. military veteran as well. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated company. Get Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content 
available only to members. And remember, military, law enforcement, uh, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, email me before you join. I have a special national service discount for you to thank you for your service. I've been asked things like, if I served as a correctional officer, is that law enforcement? Yeah. Right. I mean, if you think you qualify, email me. You probably do. Uh, one more thing I want to throw out here. I don't do this often, but I want to do this today. Um, I do, uh, you know, I pay the bills with Survival Podcast. And uh, I've built this into a business. And I got a lot of questions from the audience as I was doing that. How do you do this? How do you put together a podcast? How do you put together a blog? How do you build a, you know, build a business online? And I never wanted to turn, and I did a couple shows on it, and I occasionally will do a show on, on, on why you should have a business, uh, as part of your, uh, re redundancy program. I mean, if you have your own business, you have a lot more redundancy than an employee. Uh, but I don't want to turn this into a business podcast. So I do a show every day now called Five Minutes with Jack. It's actually about 15 minutes with Jack. It's available at jackspearco.com. And if you're interested in starting your own business, cruise on over there, and we've got some really interesting stuff coming down the pike with that show as well. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which again is Uh, some big disasters that we might eventually have to deal with, some possibly sooner than later. Um, the first one I want to talk to you about today is actually the one that I have the greatest amount of personal fear of having to deal with. And I'll tell you why. Um, a nuclear disaster, you're probably dead or you're going to be okay. Um, a global economic meltdown, I think I was about as prepared as I can get for that, and things will rebuild. Uh, warfare, we'll talk about a bit, but... There's always places to find neutrality or respite from warfare if you are willing to make the sacrifice to do so. Uh, grid failure, I think we can fix. Uh, global food shortage, I think we can get through. I don't know exactly what it'll take, but I think storing food and having a year's worth takes you a long way toward society figuring out how to solve its own problems and, and being part of the solution. And peak oil, I know we can get through because I watched Cuba do it. And all of these things that I just gave you, there's actions that you can take that will be really effective at mitigating them for you unless you're in a ground zero situation. And in many times, ground zero situations mean your problems are over. If you are on your way to work today and you're driving down the road minding your own business and one of those big giant 10-wheeler rock hauler Mack trucks with a grill the size of a wall of a building veers into your lane and smacks you head on, you're dead. Right? How do you survive that? You don't. So some of these scenarios, I think there's a way to survive them, but if you're ground zero, you're not there. But anything other than ground zero, you've got a fighting chance. The first one I want to talk about today that really scares me doesn't really have those rules applied to it. And even in a situation where you invoke a self-quarantine, there's no guarantee that you would avoid infection from a global pandemic. And that's why it's my number one concern threat for a global disaster. I also think that it has the potential to bring about other big threats. Like if you have a global pandemic, you are going to have a global economic meltdown. You are going to have a global food shortage. You're likely to have a long-term power grid failure in a lot of areas. Um, and there's a lot of other crap that's going to come with it. So it's one of those things that will, will drag along with it other nightmare scenarios. So it's a, it's an ultimate nightmare. Two is that a disease doesn't give a damn how much food you've stored. A disease doesn't give a damn if you're healthy. A disease doesn't give a damn if you work out every day. A disease doesn't care. A disease is going to do whatever it is that a disease is going to do. And when we get into the realm of diseases that are transported human to human, 
with the way that the world works today, we have a real potential for something to become a powder keg almost overnight. And guess what's on the horizon? And I, I would love to tell you that the same thing I told you last time, but I don't know yet. There's a new swine flu. Yes, there's a new swine flu. And um, it's been uh, given a clave, and I think it's H3N2. Let me check that real quick to be sure here in my notes for you. Yeah, it's H3N2. Let me read you a quick article. I had the wrong article up. That's why I wasn't able to uh, confirm it for you that quick. Anyway, survey conducted by Centers for Disease Control uh, and Prevention November showed that 36% of Americans who six months and above would get a flu vaccine. Uh, despite what I'm going to tell you today, it's not going to be me. Uh, this is the case even when doctors re- re- remain, re- remain people get to get vaccinated. I think it means remind people to get vaccinated. A simple flu shot could prevent lost time at school or work, exposed to flu, winter, blah, blah, blah. Uh, flu viruses replicate inside, blah, blah, blah. Here it is. But this winter, something unexpected has occurred. The CDC has received reports of a human infection with a new swine flu, uh, swine influenza strain called H3N2. Cases came from five different states, which are Indiana, Iowa, Maine, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. The virus came from pigs and jumped from swine to human. Half of the cases have no documented contact with pigs, which means there might be a minimal person-to-person transmission because there's already a seasonal flu H3N2 virus. The new strain is known as H3N2V, where V means variant. And there's nothing so far that says that this is going to be any worse than any other flu out there. But I want to talk to you about the swine flu uh, from a couple years ago and the death toll and what caused the death toll. So I'm going to read another quick article for you that's on the Washington Post, uh, or as Michael Savage calls them, the Washington Compost. Uh, researchers at the National Institutes of Health called the 1918 influenza pandemic the mother of all pandemics with good reason. The flu virus infected around a third of the world's population and killed at least 50 million people. So that's a track record of what flu can do. Uh, almost a century later, science has a better understanding of how most of those people died. They believe the culprit was the in- wasn't influenza itself, but immune system overreactions triggered by the virus. And it wasn't just in 1918. The, ni- the 2009 swine flu killed more than 18,000 people worldwide. According to the World, World, World Health Organization, scientists say immune overreaction caused the majority of those fatalities. I'm not going to read the rest of this article. You can read it if you want to. It's actually quite long, two pages long. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, I'll go ahead and read to you just a little bit more from the article because it'll make the point for me. Uh, most of the time, the immune system is, immune response is not too severe. A virus runs its course, the response subs, uh, subsides, but in some cases, an infection can trigger a reaction so destructive it can be fatal. Scientists call this a cytokine storm because of the violent way immune cells respond to a virus. A cytokine is a molecule that immune cells use to send signals between one another. Cytokines usually help fight off infections by telling the immune system which specific viral cells it should be attacking. But sometimes an overabundance of cytokine floods into the body, and that's when you get a storm. Cytokine storms are rare, but Pearl says they may be more common among younger people because they have a stronger immune system, which is more prone to overreaction. She said this may explain one of the more surprising outcomes of the 2009 swine flu, that it was deadlier among young people than it was among the elderly. During flu infections, Old Stone said cytokine storms can have serious damage throughout the body, especially the lungs. This, he said, is combined with lung damage causes influenza virus itself, leads to fatal cases of pneumonia. 
Uh, Old Stone and two other researchers have been looking into cytokine storms for more than five years. They've identified a cell. It's called S1P1 that responds to cytokines. They figured out how to essentially turn off the cell signal. The virologist's findings published in a recent issue of the scientific journal Cell could pave the way for a new class of immune reaction blocking drugs. It could be more effective than any viral drug. So while you're being attacked by the virus, these guys plan to turn off the part of your body that tells your immune system, go kill stuff. And they want to do that because your immune system in these storms is killing yourself. So as long as they only do it when someone's in a cytokine storm, it's kind of like, you know, you'd only give certain clot-busting uh, medications to somebody in the middle of a stroke. You wouldn't do a preventive. It might actually save some lives. But the point here is the reason that this flu last time killed some people that normally it would. And this is the important thing to understand about the last swine flu. It was completely overblown bullshit, but not to the people that it killed. Right? When it kills you, it's real to you. And the people that it killed, the funny thing was it killed some people that just shouldn't have died from the flu. They just shouldn't have. And the 1918 flu that killed 50 million people around the world did it as well. And there would be a temptation for people to say that an immuno-over-response would be a direct result of vaccinations. That vaccinations themselves could actually cause this. And I think there's some potential truth to that. But let's, let's be honest. In 1918, when 50 million people around the world died... And far more of them died in kind of third world countries and things like that. And they were dying of this immuno over response. They weren't running flu vaccination clinics all over the world. Most of these people that died from that thing had never seen a vaccination in their life. So we can't go blaming the vaccines for it. Uh, not historically, anyway. Could there be something to these recent deaths that they're more prone to cytokine storm because the immune system, and it sounds very much like an autoimmune disease to me, like a lupus or something gone totally haywire where the immune system starts killing, you know, healthy cells. Um, it has some eerie feelings sort of in the cancery world too, you know, maybe there's some viral cancers that are caused this way. I don't know, but what I do know is that when we look at something like pandemic, we have to realize that we have limitations and even with all these people paying attention to this, it's impossible to know when the next one's going to come. So this new swine flu variant, my gut is that it's no different than any other swine flu. It's no different than any other flu and a whole bunch of people aren't going to die. And I want to put some numbers in perspective for you. In uh, the last epidemic, they called it, it killed 18,000 people worldwide. Last year, on our highways, in motor vehicles, 34,000 Americans were killed in cars. 18,000 worldwide, 34,000 in cars. There is a sense of some fatalism that needs to go into your life if you're going to live and be happy and not walk around with your body just pumping full of cortisol and other stress hormones and just accepting that sometimes your number's up. Sometimes the rock holler is going to hit you. And the rock holler is a metaphor. It's not always a rock holler. It could be an illness. Um, if we wanted to take a look at something else uh, that kills a lot of people, breast cancer in 2010 um, killed... About 40,000 women, and uh, believe it or not, about 390 men. Um, if we look at oral uh, cancers, cancer of the, to the tongue, mouth, larynx, uh, and any other part of the oral system, so your mouth, basically variants of mouth cancer, uh, about 1.5 million people in uh, 2010 came down with mouth cancer, and uh, about half a million of them died from it. Uh, if we look at something like 
I don't know, uh, if we look at skin cancer, there was 11,000 people died from skin cancer in uh, 2010. So does that mean that we just write off the flu threat? No, but it, it is good to put it into a little bit of uh, statistical reality here. And uh, I want to make sure I didn't screw something up there. Uh, okay, the, the mouth cancer thing sounded wrong to me when I read it. I'm reading a report here from the American uh, Cancer Society. Um, about seven, about 2,400, uh, no, about 7,000 people totally died from mouth cancers. So it, the half a million uh, was about how many people died from cancer. So that's a total number of people that died from cancer in, uh, in 2010 was about uh, five, 569,490 people. So half a million people died of cancer in the United States in 2010, and a swine flu takes out 18,000 around the world. And in spite of the fact they said, you know, the young people died, you know there were old people that died. You know that there were people that, you know, there were people that when they started making a big deal about some of the people that died in Mexico, well, people die in Mexico uh, every year of diarrhea, okay? I mean, it all depends on the location. So I want to kind of... Try to put you into an understanding of pandemic is real. It's extremely uh, a dangerous threat long term. But a lot of the hype that you hear and then people trying to sell you sil colloidal silver and other crap is just designed to take your money and put you in a fear state. Uh, this morning on In the Loop with Betty Lou, which is, uh, which is uh, something I like to watch, a financial program I like to watch in the mornings, they were talking about the impact of the swine flu. And, and I'll tell you how they were talking about it. It, it, it. It's probably going to adversely affect pork sales, and it's probably going to make the pharmaceutical companies a lot of money. So that's the financial analysis. Dump your pork bellies and buy into the drug manufacturers, because when this gets hyped up and hysteria takes over, people will stop eating pork chops as though that's how you get swine flu, and will go out and kill their neighbor for some Tamiflu. Not quite, but metaphorically speaking. So... Kind of temper this stuff. Kind of, kind of, you know, keep from, but let's, let's be honest. The day that we have a flu strain with a high rate of contagion, so something that's easily transmitted and a lethality rate of 2%, we've got a major, major global disaster. God forbid we get something with a, with a lethality rate of 10% and a hospitalization rate of 25%. There's not room for 25% of the people in the hospitals. As soon as you get to a 25% hospitalization, in fact, as soon as you get to a 15% hospitalization rate, the hospitals are completely overrun. Your lethality rate, therefore, is going to go up. If we get something like H5N1 bird flu, and it, it goes postal on the human-to-human -human transmission, and it remains at its current lethality rate, you're looking at something with a lethality rate, depending on where and when, between 40 and 60%. It means you get the flu, you have a 4 to 6 out of 10 chance of dying. And in some cases, in some places where certain variants of H5N1 have hit, we've had death rates as high as 80%. And that's with dedicated medical attention to those people, because there's only a few of them, complete isolation, etc. Now, the good news is that flu doesn't go human-human, but some ass clown over in Denmark or Holland or somewhere over there figured out how to make it go from human to human by using ferrets and, and doing intermediate strains and showing it could be done. Great job. Thanks. We appreciate that. And that's another one of my concerns, is that one of these pandemics is going to be triggered by what our science is doing with these diseases. It could be reckless behavior, like playing with ferrets and bird flu. It could be legitimate research that goes awry. It takes one virus getting into one person, mutating, and escaping. The virus needs one good day. So with pandemic, I'm not going to say any more for now, because a lot of the other things I'm going to talk about 
are going to be results of a pandemic. But a pandemic, that's one of my biggest long-term threats, uh, my concerns for long-term threats. The next one I have is nuclear disaster or nuclear warfare. In a lot of ways that I feel a full-scale nuclear war, I, 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 I almost go in my fatalistic view at that point. Um, it just doesn't seem like there's much hope for mankind if you ever had the Chinese, the Russians, the Americans, and, and the French, and the Pakistanis all push all the buttons at one time. It really doesn't. But what we have a potential for more likely from nuclear disasters are events like Fukushima. And I want to talk to you a little bit today about a report that I keep getting from some of you guys on Fukushima. And I want you, I want to tell you flat out, I find this to be the most made up, trumped up pile of crap. Um, it's put out on Market Watch and it was done as a press release over PR Newswire. Let me explain something about PR Newswire. You should have no more faith in anything that comes across PR Newswire than you do that comes off of Joe Blow's blog. Anybody with a, with a credit card can put a story out on PR Newswire. I'm going to read a little bit of this to you. Uh, PR Newswire, December 19th, 2011, via Comtex. Impact seen as roughly comparable to radiation-related deaths after Chernobyl. Infants are hardest hit, with continuing research showing even higher possible death count. An estimated 14,000 excess deaths in the United States are linked to radioactive fallout from the disaster at Fukushima nuclear reactors in Japan, according to a major news article in the December 2011 edition of the International Journal of Health Services, the first peer-reviewed study published in a medical journal documenting health hazards of Fukushima. Authors Joseph Mangro and Janet Sherman note their estimate of 14,000 excess U.S. deaths in 14 weeks after Fukushima meltdown is comparable to the 16,000 excess deaths in 17 weeks after Chernobyl meltdown in 1986. The rise in reported deaths after Fukushima was the largest among U.S. infants at age under age one. In 2010-2011, increase for infant deaths in the spring was 1.8%, compared with a decrease of 8.37% in the preceding 14 weeks. Uh, the IJHS article will be published Tuesday and will be available online at 11 p.m. Eastern at radiation.org, and you can read the rest of the article if you want to. Here's the thing. I've read it. I've read this whole article, and I've looked through the report, and they can't show me a single infant death and say the cause of this child's death is exposure to radiation. Not one. All they say is there's more this 14 weeks than the prior 14 weeks and the prior 14 weeks was 8.3% lower but the total death rate was only 1.4%. That's playing with numbers. That's making shit up. All right. So this whole freakout over Fukushima in the United States, is completely overblown. Is it good for us? Is it like vitamin C and stuff floating around in the atmosphere? No. But please don't give in to the nonsense. And I'll tell you what, here's the other thing. If there is any risk from Fukushima, do you know what you can do about it right now? Absolutely nothing. So it's not worth concerning yourself about. Now, one of these things going haywire in California tomorrow, that's something to concern yourself about. Uh, a grid failure that precipitates a couple of nuclear disasters across the country all at the same time, that's something to worry about. The fact that we're using weapons-based technology to produce energy, that's something to worry about. The fact that some of these facilities have been online and operating under their current designs for over 50 years, that's something to worry about. The fact that your government is too stupid to approve new reactors so that we can put in new ones using new safer designs instead of using these legacy old ones that we can't afford to give up the energy to turn off, that's 
something to worry about. So I have a great deal of concern uh, with the potential for nuclear disaster in the future. I also know it's one of the things that I can actually do very little about. There's some things we can do to protect ourselves, but the fact is that if you are affected by a nuclear disaster and you're in a legitimate area of danger, the only thing you can do is leave the area of danger. It's tasteless, it's odorless, you can't see it, you can't smell it, and in most instances, you can't feel it. You can feel it make you sick over time. But when we, when we, when we look at that threat, we just have to be prepared to understand that at some point you may have to leave wherever you are, and you have to, may have to go very, very far away. Uh, I don't think anybody will be hanging out in Fukushima anytime soon. Uh, we know nobody's gonna be hanging out in Chernobyl anytime soon, and nobody's been hanging out there for a very long time. It's a real threat. It's something we have to be prepared for. Um, on the war end, I'm less concerned. Uh, I want to talk a little bit in the, uh, further down the episode about global conventional war and why I think it happened, so I'll save my comments on it for them. Um, the next one I have on my list is global economic meltdown. This is one that I can say is going to happen. The global economy is going to experience a meltdown. It's going to experience a global need for a rebasement of the entire global economic system. The people running it have assured that by the way they've run it. They've done things that are just, you can't fix them now. It's too far gone. You cannot have a debt-based currency. I think this is one of the biggest things that people misunderstand. What we're always told is that our currencies today are fiat. And they are and they aren't. When people say that, they say, well, it's worth money because the government says so. It's by fiat, by declaration. And our, our money is worth something due to fiat. But it's not a pure fiat currency. A pure fiat currency would have been Lincoln's greenback. We printed notes. We said they're good. We put out a statement. They're from the government. They're backed by government. right? Fiat, the issuer, says they're good. Therefore, they're good. The issuer will take them in rebate. Therefore, they're good. So the U.S. government can print money and say it's good as long as they'll take it as a repayment in taxes. And it'll legitimize it. And we can talk about the good and the bad of that system, but that's a pure fiat. We have a system now with the legal tender law that says you will take U.S. dollars as money, and that's the fiat portion. But the other side of it is debt backing. So every if you pull out a $10 bill right now and you look at that, that's not a $10 bill because your government says so. It's a $10 bill because your government said so and against it is owed debt that exceeds its face value. So that $10 bill is a certificate for debt plus interest. You can't run a system like that forever. We've been doing it since 1913. It's eroded 97% of the value of the dollar in a little over 100 years. It's about 1% a year on average. And much of it came in the last 20 years. And it's accelerated over time. If you look at 1970 versus 1920, the value of a dollar had eroded, but nowhere near the way that it's eroded between 1970 and 2012. If you look at the graph of the erosion of the, of the dollar, it take, and especially through the 80s, the 90s, and, and recently, it takes a hockey stick up. And that's the problem with these systems, is that they will have stability for a while, and eventually they'll hit a climax state. And once they hit a climax state, like anything else in a climax state, the only thing to happen at the end of a climax state is for it to be burnt down and rebuilt. And it's impossible to believe that these clowns can restart this thing and keep it sustainable. What we're seeing 
This is a very interesting financial trend that I've been noticing. We create booms and busts, and each boom period is beginning to shrink. So we have like a boom period in the 90s, and it was almost 10 years. And then we had a boom period in the early 2000s that was like four. And believe it or not, right now we're kind of in a financial boom. It's, it's, it's lasted about really about a year and a half, but it's shaky. It's not really firm because it's only in stock prices. It's not in the economy. If the economy recovers, I expect this half-life thing to continue. When the economy recovers, they'll call it that. Since we had about a four-year period of boom last time, we'll end up with about a two-year period this time. Maybe one. It may even be more accelerated, but probably two. It'll probably take that long for everything to wash out for all these other things. The other thing that, that, that makes me believe this has to occur is, again, the fact that if we look around the country... And we looked at every major city and every second-tier city and just about every third-tier city in America, they are either nearly bankrupt or on the direct path to bankruptcy, right? And most of them that are nearly bankrupt are really bankrupt, but they're able to finagle the money and still sell bonds and still get, as long as they can get more debt, they're, they're staving off the bankruptcy. But come on, if they were a company, their, their shareholders would have dumped their shares long ago. Their bondholders would have called it due long ago. But because they're a government, they're able to play the game for longer. They're able to climb higher and the higher you climb, the further you fall. So those, those cities are done. Detroit is done. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania is done. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is a couple breaths away from being done. Los Angeles is done, but a lot of nonsense has been done to pretend that it's not done. San Francisco, on its way down. Honolulu, on its way down. I mean, it's, it, 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 and it's, you know, one after the other. Now that's not what really scares me. If a few big cities failed, and all the other cities went, oh crap, but to fix this, that would be good. The problem is all of these cities are on the cusp of failure, and all of the ones that aren't quite as bad yet, they're doing the same stuff. They haven't learned anything. There isn't a major city in America right now that I can find that is that is that is, that has debt issues that has taken seriously the need to fix them. There's a lot of talk about it, but nobody's doing anything. If you're not willing to cut, you know, and I mean there's some stuff that was done in Wisconsin and all, but see those were band-aids, those are short-term fixes. Those are well. Let's 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 you know not let the union sell itself its own health insurance for our teachers. Let's go out for an open bid and cut the cost of that's that's great, but that is such a small step for the real problem. These cities are continuing to do things they can't afford. They have a huge retirement generation that is like. See, everybody talks about the baby boomers and Social Security. What about the baby boomers that are retiring from municipal and county and city jobs all over America right now? And they're, it's like a tidal wave. They're getting the, the numbers are increasing exponentially. And the, unlike a private company that says, "Hey, look, you know, even with union involvement, hey, look, there's only so much money. You guys are going to get a cut in your retirement benefits. That's it." These cities can be squeezed and forced and and and, and massaged and 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 beg some other you know the city begs the county and the county begs the state and we can't let our bond prices go up. We all need more debt, and eventually this thing has to cascade. We've got Europe about to go through what the United States went through in 2008. It's almost the same thing. It's a little different. It'll smell a little different. It'll look a little different, but in the end, it's pretty much the same thing. 
will pump money in to help fix that. They won't tell you. You know, they already sent $13 trillion around the world they didn't tell you about, so the Federal Reserve did. The Federal Reserve gave away $13 trillion a year money. They call it a loan, but it's your money. It devalued your money right here at home. People will say there's no inflation. I have another little article I want to, well, not really an article, a little listener feedback I want to read for you. Part of her story is great, and part of it just redrives home the inflation, but I'll read the whole thing for you instead of splitting it between two episodes. Hi, Jack. Just wanted to report on my year of tracking the food I bought in 2011. I took this up as a personal challenge last year based on your recommendation. I recorded it monthly on a spreadsheet, kept track of what we buy, the amounts, unit prices, and brands, so I know exactly how much we use on average in a month of fresh food like milk, eggs, etc. I also know what change in local prices has been over the year. For example, one dozen eggs went from $275 to $299 from January to December, a gallon of milk from $329 to $349. I want to hold there on this person's article, and I want to tell you what I heard on the in the loop with Betty Lou today. Soft commodities went down like a rock in 2011. Corn, sugar, flour, coffee, everything went down. At the same time, Starbucks is raising its prices because they say the cost of coffee is going up. All right, so what do we see here? The underlying commodity, 2011 started off strong, 2010 was strong for commodities, and then commodities fell through 2011 and prices still went up. It's inflation. I keep telling you that inflation is not your money, or not prices rising, it's your money buying less. You're seeing the inflation come. What is the inflation going to do? If I pay less for a commodity and I sell it to you for more, there's a greater delta that increases my profits. It's almost like I know what I'm talking about. It's almost like the false recovery is right on track in spite of all the other shit all the other ass clowns are telling you out there. This is exactly what happens. They erode the commodity underneath. They put the people into misery, and then they convince you that prices are supposed to go up even when their cost is going down. This will lead to eventual economic growth. It will eventually lead to some level of recovery and even in the unemployment market. It will lead to new confidence. It will lead to new borrowing. It will lead to more spending. And it will lead to the eventual collapse. That's that's why I'm sure about this one. Okay, now I want to read the rest of it and give you guys some positive stuff today. And eat what you store and store what you eat is easy when you know you are buying over the course of a year. It also gives me the information I need to buy at the best price when assessing sales. For example, my best price on Hellman's mayonnaise was $2.50 for a jar that regularly costs $4.99. I was able to take advantage of opportunity buys at my local store by leveraging the sales of the week. That gave me a huge leg up on getting a food storage program in place. The extra cash I saved from buying on a sale one week went into extra amounts of the next week's sale items, building up my storage week by week. I know now that we need 30 pounds of dog food a month on average so I can plan ahead for my dog. Man, I wish I only needed 30 pounds. Uh, as well as for us. I know I use 10 pounds of flour every week for baking bread, so we use seven dozen eggs a month on average. Uh, four to five gallons of milk. I learned how to can butter this year, so when butter goes on sale, I can put some of it by for more than 50% off the regular price and store it with no less quality. Need to find or need to find space in the freezer. I've invested in food preparation tools this year, including a meat food slicer and a dehydrator, and both I bought and put up extra shelving on sale in the cellar for extra food. The grandkids know when they run out of apple juice, all we have to do is go to the dungeon. 
for another bottle. Planted a small garden, harvested my first cucumber on July 4th and my last on October 14th. Not bad for the cool northeast. So whether it's tomato sauce or toothpaste, beans or beer, I know what I need and what need to get by. I can identify good and excellent buying opportunity. I regularly pay full price for anything anymore except fresh dairy and veggies. So thanks for your advice in this area. I'll keep doing it. The peace of mind is priceless. And that's you're going to ask me what to do. There's what you do. You do what we've been talking about. That lady has put up a tremendous amount of food. If there's an economic meltdown, assuming she can stay in her house, keep the lights on, she's going to eat. So global economic meltdown. The next one I'm becoming more increasingly concerned about is a global conventional war. I don't think people in this country understand how fortunate we were through two world wars that we were separated by these two great big bodies of water called oceans, and nobody dropped any bombs directly on the mainland USA. Uh, now we have jet fighters that can make it across you know, in, a, in an hour. And some will get through. And there's missiles, and there's all kinds of things that can be used in a war between nations uh, that are not nuclear. And I think a lot of people have come to the conclusion that if there's a global war, if there's a World War III, it has to be nuclear. It can't be a conventional war. I don't think that's true. World War I, when World War I was fought, They used mustard gas and other gas. And both sides used it. The Axis and the Allies, I don't think that's what they called them back then, when the same players kind of played similar parts the second time around. Um, but in World War I, Germans, French, Americans, English, we launched gas at each other. Gas that literally dissolved lungs and caused people to choke their lungs up. So when World War II came around, it was pretty much a given that this was going to happen again, but it didn't. Well, there are agreements and things like that, but everybody figured, you know, once one side starts to lose, they're going to start launching it, and then the other side starts to get the launch, that's going to give them, and you know, it's going to happen again, and it didn't. In the uh, in the war in Iraq, uh, especially the, the first time we went in, back when I was in the military, they told us they're going to gas us, they're going to they're going to use this stuff, folks. They have it, they're going to do it, and they didn't. There is a potential that in a war the, the, the greatest weapons are withheld if the other side has them. Now, if the other side doesn't have them, or the other side doesn't have something worse, the propensity is for it to be used. When was the one time a nuclear bomb, and we can talk about depleted plutonium and all that, I know, folks, don't, don't try to get nitpicky here. What was the one time that somebody actually took a nuclear bomb and detonated it and killed other people with it? The only time that ever happened was when we absolutely knew the other side did not have one. And as soon as people started to get them, more than one person had them, the whole concept became almost unconscionable that they would be used. So is it possible that a World War III could escalate to nuclear? Of course. It's also possible that it could remain largely conventional and that nuclear would be used in strategic strikes. It could also be that nuclear is not used at all. There's a lot of things that could cause a war. Right now, Iran is you know, a center of attention, and I'm concerned about it, but I, I am more concerned about long-term resource depletion, and when nations are hungry, they go to war to feed their people. It's just the facts. It's always been the facts. So global warfare, I worry about I worry about it a lot less than everything else on this list. Um, but if it happens, it's, it's a major, major issue. And again, it's something that can be, a lot of these things are interlinked. Long-term power grid failure. And this would be something that would be caused most likely by an electromagnetic pulse attack or grid failure, I mean, or a solar flare. The solar flare is possible, but it's 
There's a lot more protection built in our system than people that like to hype that threat tell you there is. It's true that in the 1800s, telegraph lines literally caught on fire, but they were just pretty much line strung pole to pole. There wasn't a whole lot of grounding and protection put in. Is there potential for an EMP to cause major grid outage? Yes. Is it, is it going to be as big as some books would like to, you to believe? Probably not. EMP is a different story. A coordinated EMP attack, multiple weapon EMP attack, has the potential to do massive damage to the civilian grid. And you know, once you have that, then you have pandemics. You're, see, that's a, I, I don't think people realize that. When you take a modern society that's so dependent on modern methods of staying warm and dealing with sanitation and everything else, and you remove the infrastructure, you're going to get a pandemic, right? You're going to get a global economic meltdown. You're going to get a food shortage. I mean, everything else on the list is going to happen if you have a grid failure. And it's, it's, so it's one of those things that I really worry about. Now, I think some people are deluding themselves, right? They're going to EMP protect everything, okay? If you have your own power generation, okay, that makes sense. But if there's no grid, what are you going to plug your radio into, right? So the only real protection for you individually from this type of a threat is to not only control, protect the devices, but to have a surplus of energy, whether it's stored as diesel fuel or gas or solar or wind or whatever it is. That's, that's really the only way. Because you can have all your toys work, but if you don't get any Duracells for them or petroleum for them or kilowatts for them, they're not going to go. And there is a big, you know, potential. I've seen people like, I've got my vehicle grounded. I've got this. I've got that. I've got a chain that drags along and I've got this metal, metal shed and that's grounded and that's my garage. And great. How much gas do you have stored? 50 gallons. How far are you going to go on 50 gallons when all the other vehicles are dead in the, in the middle of the road? It, it, this is a, this is one of those things that when we talk about it as an apocalyptic event and then we talk about how we would survive it, we, we engage in a lot of intellectual and mental masturbation. We really do. We, 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 we create this delusion about how we would be able to deal with this and it would be a cascade failure like you can't imagine. Fortunately, it really isn't that likely. And the reason it isn't that likely is because Again, the grid has a lot more protections and redundancies built into it than we would expect. And a lot of the points where when the initial thing happened and the grid shut down, it would actually save it. What I mean by that is, okay, we had this guy out in the desert, out in New Mexico this year, changed that apart. Changed that apart. That was it. And like two million people went without power for a couple of days. Because once one thing failed, another thing failed, and another thing failed, and, another, and he didn't even do anything wrong. The system just, like, hiccuped, and it created this cascade. The cascade itself is a protection. I know you don't think it is, but if we don't burn things up, right, then, then we are able to bring them back up. The big danger in an EMP or a solar flare or anything akin to that is the transformers blowing. As long as we can keep the transformers alive, we can rerun wire and cable and things like that. I can't tell you there's no risk. I just can tell you that it's not something I sit around really worrying about every day. I can say that this next one is something I worry a lot more about because it could result in pandemic, economic meltdown, and war. And that's a global food shortage. 
when I look at the way food's being grown today, and I, I just look at it and I just see a potential for a disaster akin to the financial disaster that we had, I want you to think about this. No one really believed that a quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives was a good idea. No one really believed that giving a loan for $250,000 to a person that made $40,000 a year last year and couldn't even verify this year that they were going to do it again with no down payment was a good idea. No one, no one really thought it was a good idea for a company that was already losing money to go out and acquire more debt to build a product that nobody wanted because the government said they should. And I can keep going with everything that precipitated the economic collapse. And even though everybody really knew it was a bad idea, everybody said it would be okay, and as long as the, 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 the Ponzi scheme ran, everybody was content with it. Right now, nobody thinks it's a good idea for cities and counties that I talked about earlier to continue on the way they are, spending money and borrowing money as though it'll never run out. Everybody knows this is disaster, but everybody, including the union bosses and the, the mayors of the towns and the people that are on the, on the retirement benefits and the people that are still working, everybody's okay with it as long as it runs. But everybody knows that eventually it has to end. Everybody can see it. Everybody's hope is by the time it ends, it won't be my problem. I won't be the one holding the hot potato. But everybody can see it coming. But yet, collectively, delusionally, we continue to do it anyway. When I look at modern agriculture, I see the exact same thing. We keep screwing around GMOs. We're poisoning our bodies. We're poisoning our land. We're, we're now growing food on the most fertile soil that we have left. We're taking that food and we're spraying it with herbicides. And those herbicides are saturating the ground so that only the genetically modified plant will ever be able to grow there for 10, 15 years in some cases. So we're actually destroying our ability to produce food unless we continue with the product that we already have. With no guarantee that that product won't someday fail. No guarantee that someday we won't want a different product. Or might not need a different product. That's where we're headed with the food industry. At the same time, We're depleting our aquifers across the globe. So we're not going to have enough water to water these plants. And when I look at the whole thing and the population not running away like some of the extremists say, but it's continuing to grow and the demand continuing to grow, I see a powder keg. And if you add an economic meltdown to that system, see, it's the way these things interplay that's really dangerous. Everybody wants to focus on, well, I'm preparing for this, I'm preparing for that. You don't get to pick your disaster. Besides, disasters don't work that way. Every single one of these big disasters today links to and causes others. I'll just skip to the last one as we wrap up. Peak oil. Peak oil is one of those things that people just like to deny. People like to just say, ah, it's all nonsense. It's a bunch of hippie crap. Um, peak oil is real. We've seen it in every modern oil field. Peak oil is simply the fact that at one point, extraction reaches its maximum, and then from there begins a decline. And that decline is a bell-shaped curve. It goes up slowly, then really, really fast, peaks out, stays there for a plateau in a while, begins to slow down, and then comes down the other side relatively quickly. Every single oil field that's ever been tapped has experienced peak oil. Every single one. Every single one. The ones that haven't, haven't yet because they're new. 
If you've got an oil field that's been running for 10, 20 years, it's hit peak and it's in decline. Every single time. Because it's the way that it works. You have to think about it. If you look at your hand and you say, okay, my hand represents a big pool of oil underground. Hold it like you're holding a plate, you know, like a waiter. And it's a pool. And it's it's a huge pool, much bigger than your hand. But it's kind of shaped like that. It's like this big reservoir and it's under the ground. And if you just take your, your, your little finger and you curl it up like you're going to make a fist and maybe you curl your ring finger, right? And that's your extraction of the oil for the first, I don't know, phase. Let's not even make it year, years. All right. Now you can see that you took a lot of oil out, but there's still more oil there than you put in. Now take your, your index finger and your middle finger and collapse them. And that's what's left of the field. Now you're about halfway through it. Guess what? Take your thumb and like you're going to make a, a, a fist, a stupid fist where you're going to close your thumb in it and push your thumb in there. And now you're past halfway. Guess what? You're at peak. And that's what's left. And now you've taken out half of what's there. Continue to close your fist. And then realize when you get down to about, you know, it's about a quarter of the size that it is open. Guess what? That's all that's left. And eventually, just put your hand under a table. It's gone. That's peak oil. That's how it works. It takes a very long time to happen, but it always happens. And the other thing that we have to understand, to really understand the threat that peak oil represents, is it's not just about the oil in the ground and the rate of extraction and everything I just explained to you there with my hand or your hand. Peak oil is about demand. Now, there are one point seven billion people in China and there's over a billion people in India and a fraction of them have cars a fraction compared to the the, the 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 penetration of owning vehicles in the United States those people are expanding and when you put a billion people on a moped it's a huge uptick in petroleum demand there's been a major increase in the use of petroleum in China and India, both over the last 10 years, major. Um, if you look at the consumption rates, it's huge. When we look at around the world and we have people like the Saudi Arabians saying, ah, we can just, whenever you guys need more, tell us. We'll just turn the, the faucet open a little bit more. It's bullshit. We found out in WikiLeaks. The chief geologist from Saudi Arabia sent a, a, a communication to our department over here and said, hey, you know what we've always been saying about just being able to produce more? Yeah, we can't. We're kind of in a peak state ourselves right now. We're not going down, but we're producing just about as much as we can. We have very little headroom that we can... I mean, this is fact. This isn't conspiracy stuff. This is absolute fact. So... Am I telling you that like in the next two years, all of a sudden oil is going to just drop and go away? No, I'm telling you it's a very long decline. I think the one book on it is called The Long Emergency. I've never read that book. I've been told I should. I probably already get the point, though. That's why I don't read a lot of books I'm recommended. I already understand this stuff. So I want you to now kind of paint the, to you a disaster shift scenario. Let's say that one day we end up with a pandemic, and it's not going to kill everybody, but it's akin to 1918. And actually, a lot less people die because we have modern medicine and more controls and better understanding, and it kills 25 million versus 50 million people worldwide. And this happens right in the middle of a period in time where we're dealing with a, 
uh, economic problem. It's not cry crisis yet, but it's close. Well, it's going to push it right over. So now we've got an economic crisis while we have a global pandemic going on and people fearing and people start hoarding. Well, of course, with that many people going and dying and the resources being hoarded, uh, we're probably going to have at least regional warfare in several areas. That's going to contribute to a greater shortage of food in, in addition to the, the hoarding. And if we have any failure in the oil supply during that time, which we most likely would simply because of nations exporting less because needing more for themselves to deal with their own emergencies, we've almost got everything. We've almost got everything on my list except nuclear problems. And God forbid one should those, those should occur. And I, I don't want you to leave today's episode in fear, but I want you to realize why we do this stuff. Because we don't know what's going to happen. And the reality is, everything on the list is going to happen probably on much smaller scales. Right? We'll have great failures. It's going to happen. We're going to, we're going to have peak oil, but it's not going to be everywhere all at once. But what does $5.50 gas do to an already struggling economy? With a six, when does gas get to a point where you decide, I can't live the way that I've been living anymore? Not, I have to cut back a little bit. When, what is the, let me just start giving you numbers. And you tell me when it hits you that I, you got, you go, I can't, even if it's just gas, right? Where you just go, I've got to actually make major changes in my life now. Three dollars? We're already past that, so. Four? Five? Six? Six dollars a gallon. Can you keep living your life the way you are right now at six dollars a gallon? Understand that if we have six dollar a gallon gas, all the food you're buying and just about everything you're paying for it will just about double in price at that point. So six dollar gas, double of price across the board. Can you, can you just keep living it? Or do you have to make a major shift in your life? Seven. Eight. Nine dollar gas. Think nine dollar gas can't happen? Nine, what does nine dollar gas mean to you personally? And I don't care why it's nine dollar gas. Just what does it mean? If we have a gas cost of nine, and you think it can't happen? You think it can't happen? Let me tell you something. In 19, what would have been about 1996, 1996, that's not that long ago. 1996, 1995, in that range, I was working as a contractor. I spent a lot of time in Houston, Texas, where they kind of rolled their own with gas. The refineries are right there. And I was paying about 86 cents a gallon for gasoline. 1995, 96, somewhere in that range. 86 cents a gallon. Gas today, three to four bucks, depending on where you're at in the country. Um, that's four times what it was. Or three times what it was. Let's say three times. If gas went up another three times in cost over the same period of time, let's say another 15 years, that's nine dollars. That's nine. It's rate. The numbers just work out that way. It's nine dollar gas. What would nine dollar gas mean to you? Can you live the way you live now at nine dollars a gallon for gas? Uh, let me put it another way. If I increased your, your salary by 50%, you make 50, I give you 75. But we go to $9 gas and all the other stuff that goes with it, can you keep living the way that you're living? See, and that's what most of these bigger threats are. It's not that it's the end. It's the shift that they cause in, in people 
and in the world. And in some ways, those shifts, believe it or not, can actually be good. Peak oil is probably the only thing that will ever lead us to actually take alternative energy seriously and do it right. It really is. It's, and the stuff that is being done seriously with alternative energy, it's, it's the driving force. It's the recognition that we just can't keep pumping something that's a finite resource and expect it to never run out. It's absolutely a retarded state to be in. How can you possibly believe you can pump anything that doesn't regenerate itself forever? You know you can't. And even the powers that be know that they can't. Even when they tell you that they can, or it's not a problem for you or even your kids, it's just 100 years down the road. Even when they tell you that, they know they're lying. Why do you think the U.S. military is looking into running jets with coal-based fuels and biofuels? Because they know. And that's another fact. That's another absolute fact. The U.S. military is working on jets that will run on fuel other than oil-based fuels. In fact, they already have some prototypes. Think about that. You know, That's where the whole thing is headed. So, again, unless we have like some kind of major event, I do see it as much more of a long-term shift. And I, that's why I call it a shift in the world as we know it instead of the end of the world as we know it. I think there's a lot of hope. But I want to give you a little bit of reality today. I want to talk to you about some things that actually can happen, what it means if they do happen. But what do we do about it? Well, we can live our lives in fear. We can listen to shock jocks on the radio, scare the hell out of us, and tell us to buy whatever brand of stuff they're selling this week. We can realize that our greatest asset lies with between our two ears. It's our brain. And if we think smart and we build resilient quality, uh, re resiliency in our lives and quality of life in our life, if we build a lifestyle where we can live with less and still be happy and, and take what we want today and understand that we may have to back up a little bit and adjust, we can get through the majority of these things. There are people that went right through the middle of some of the worst disasters in the world, and if they weren't ground zero in them, they did just fine. And that's really how humanity has tended to work since the very first people walked the planet. That even in the greatest calamities, there were plenty of people that made it through to the other side. Other than the one big bottleneck, maybe we'll talk about that someday. But even in that case, for some people it worked out. If you want to be one of the people for whom it'll work out, you got to be prepared. You got to think. You got to realize you have certain needs. You got food, shelter, water, security, right? Energy, sanitation. Those are your big ones. If you can look after those, you're probably going to be okay. And if you're not okay, again, I, I have to be honest with you, there's a place for fatalism. If the Mack truck hits you on your way to work, you're dead. You know, what do I do if the nuclear plant two blocks down the road from where I work explodes? You get vaporized. It's not likely. You know, you're more likely to die of cancer, just like the statistics I gave you today. You're probably more likely to die from a bee sting. You know, or you're more likely if you go swimming to die from a shark bite than to have a nuclear plant explode near where you live and vaporize you. But if it happens, it happens. There's only so much we can do. But what we can do is we can be prepared for the most likely things. And if any of the bigger things happen, we can deal with them from a standpoint of actually having some resources available. Realize that in all of these situations, what the big problem is, is not the disaster. It's the aftermath of the disaster, the shortage of resources. 
That's why it makes sense to store the resources and be mentally prepared. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.